Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Joining me today is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andre. I appreciate it. So this week's interview is someone that you were really interested in talking to. So tell us a little bit about him. You no, know, I had a chance to speak with Keith Law. He's a longtime baseball writer, but Keith, who writes for The Atlantic, but he previously was at ESPN. Before that, he was a baseball prospectus, and uh, he spent some time with one of the major league teams called the Toronto Blue Jays. But if you follow him a little more closely, like all the best sports writers, they're the breadth to his interests. And so he's able to put a lot of the things that he's interested in in sports, but put them into a broader context. So he has written his personal blog, has a lot on uh, novels and literature and um, board games and food. And so he's actually quite an interesting person, very intelligent person. And he kind of goes beyond just the sport ball stuff. And uh, I've, I've always enjoyed his writing. But wait a minute. I, I just told our listeners it's a science podcast. Well, he this particular book, I was interested in this in this interview because yes, Keith Law is nominally a sports writer, but his interests are much broader and he's always had a heavy emphasis on the analytics and the analytical side of baseball, which can be statistics heavy, and his new book called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves is very rich in behavioral economics, decision-making, cognitive science more broadly. So I thought it was really interesting to meld my two interests, psychology and cognitive neuroscience, with with baseball. Because again, it's an interesting laboratory for taking some of the behavioral economic principles and applying them in this quote-unquote model system, that being Major League Baseball. And if anyone is a Major League Baseball fan, there's not much else to do right now. Yeah, I mean, the season is uh, on hold, justifiably, as all the major sports are. I've been watching long, old games on YouTube, which has been super fun to go back to my youth and watch the Yankees from the 80s. But because baseball is always a very statistics-rich game, of all the major sports, baseball was an early pioneer in analytics. It remains so. And because it is, is has many discrete events, it's highly quantifiable that there's so many ways to slice it and dice it and look at it that it really lends itself to this really interesting analysis. And the game has changed dramatically, certainly in my lifetime, but even before that. And this is some of the things we, we I spoke about with Keith from his time as a scout, say in the early 2000s, to here we are at 2020, just how much the game has evolved and the analytics going into the decision-making. Keith, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. 
Let's start with a bit on your background. Uh, you started your career writing for the venerable baseball prospectus, and then you landed a job with the Toronto Blue Jays in the early 2000s, if my uh, research is accurate, and you can tell me whether that's true. But what was baseball like at that time in terms of the processes and the rigor that went into decision making? It was very different. So I joined the Blue Jays officially January 1st, 2002. I had uh, started sort of consulting, I guess, unofficially at the winter meetings a few weeks prior to that uh, for J.P. Ricciardi, who hired me to be the stats department. I was his stats guy. And at that point, uh, there were two things that were very, very significantly different at the time, in addition to just sort of the cultural shift now where where every team has an analytics department and it's a major part of decision making. Obviously, in 2002, that was uh, not the norm. There were probably fewer than five teams that actually included analytics uh, in any um, significant way in their decision making. But the, the two things that were different, one was that the... I, I've joked many times, including in smart baseball, that I, I couldn't get that job now. I don't have the technical expertise required to work in analytics uh, because so much of the job at the time was simply about getting the data. Uh, so the the two big differences, one is the, there wasn't that much data available and two, actually getting the data became a large part of the work. For example, collecting college data. I probably spent more time on the specific task of gathering and assembling and then then working with data on college players from their springs and from whatever they did over the summers as well. Uh, Wood bat leagues like the Cape Cod League, for example, for listeners who aren't familiar with that. Simply collecting that data and, and putting it into one place and then being able to work with it at all. And the type of analysis I did at the time was fairly rudimentary because we, we didn't have a lot of uh, a very detailed data. That's what I did. That was a huge. That was essentially what my job was. Now I do similar stuff for minor league data, for example, but that was a little easier to come by, and I could spend more time working with it because I was spending less time simply gathering it. And also, a large part of my work, or a, a not insignificant part of the work too, was then taking the results and putting them in a format that the baseball people around me were. Uh, familiar with. You're not working with people with any kind of mathematical or statistical background, right? So the way you present data to someone without that kind of technical background is very different, typically, than the way you might present data or or the results of analysis to people who do have more of that background. It's just a matter of knowing your audience and what are they used to seeing and what makes, what type of, uh, what format of information is easier for them to digest. So, so much of what I did at the time was uh, simply a matter of the environment I worked in where the data was not as there wasn't as much of it and it was harder to get. And then also recognizing I was entering a culture where my preferred way of thinking about things, of presenting data, you know, where that, you know, I've always joked math is kind of like another language to me. I just kind of grew up a math kid and my dad was an electrical engineer. This was normal. Then I entered a, a business environment where that wasn't typical and had to really change the way that I presented a lot of this information, also probably just didn't do a very good job up front of presenting this information because I came in and said, well, this is how I took, this is what, this is how the world works. What do you mean you guys don't speak math? I speak math. Why don't you speak math? And learning, no, you have to understand your audience and present the information to them in the way that they're ready to receive it. None of that is true today. Every All 30 teams have large analytics departments that employ six to 20 people. And the terminology of analytics is now infused in just about every baseball conversation, almost every team when making their decisions. They may not necessarily be making the right decisions, the optimal decisions, 
but they're using data, they're using or they're using the uh, analysis of that data to inform those decisions. So to me, it, it is it's it's a positive change. It's progress. It's extremely different today than it was even I would say the 14 years ago when I left the Blue Jays front office when this revolution was really still uh, at its most nascent stage. You know, the the scouts versus stats debate in baseball has always, to me, felt like a false dichotomy as much as the nature-nurture debate is a false dichotomy. Of course, we need both. But do you feel that there are areas where the stats makes is more informative for decision making and there are other areas where the scouts are still instrumental and critical for that decision making and maybe how is that kind of you know plurality i guess if you will or that that yin yang how is that shifted over time from the early aughts so i completely agree with you that it is a false dichotomy uh, i actually just got on somebody a professor at, um i did my got my graduate degree at carnegie mellon and a professor there was giving a talk on Scouts versus stats, and I, I contacted the school. I said, you know, that that's not even true, right? These these two sides are not in opposition. They actually work together. And all of the scouts I know, to to a, a man, all of them uh, are conversant with the language of analytics. Now they may we may all disagree on how much to lean on one versus the other, right? And I don't know that there's even necessarily a perfect formula. I certainly wouldn't claim to know what it is of how much to use one information source, the traditional evaluation style of scouts, versus using the analytics side, that new information source. But the answer is certainly not 100, 0, or 0, 100. There, is no, there are no teams that think that way. I don't really know people who think that way. I don't know people on the analytics side who totally disregard scouts. Even Sig Mejdal, who helped me quite a bit with both of my books, actually, is now the assistant GM for the Baltimore Orioles. And as a PhD and worked for NASA at one point, who is as as statsy a stats guy as you're going to find, loves scouts, loves working with scouts, simply views the information that scouts provide as more data. And I think that really is, that is the ideal way to look at things is that there are certain types of information that you can get better from, from scouts, from human subjective evaluation. And there are some things that are just always going to be better if you're getting them from technology. And now that we have this StatCast system, which includes, you'll hear StatCast, you'll hear the term track, man, they're generally referring to the same type of information. That is able to tell us things like the spin rate on a curveball. Now, you could send me out. I mean, I, I, I learned how to scout. I know how to go see players and talk about what I see. I can tell you if I think a curveball's got good spin or kind of slow spin, but I certainly couldn't give you a spin rate in RPMs we have technology that can measure that for us. And to me, that is, in a way, it is freeing. Well, now you can say to scouts, look, I'm, I'm not asking you to tell me how good the spin rate is on the curveball because I have something to measure that. I want you to go tell me about the things that I can't measure. Go tell me about the things you see, which often is the stuff that's happening sort of between the lines, the things that are happening between the plays, whether a player is positioned properly or what his first step is like, how he's reacting what a pitcher's body language is when things start going wrong on the field. There's no way to measure that through this kind of technology. So let the machines figure out exit velocity and launch angle and spin rates. Let the scouts go out and do the things they've always been doing. But now you're saying, well, I don't need you to gather all the information you used to gather. You might be gathering two-thirds as much information, but you can spend more of your 
mental energy. You reduce your cognitive load so you can spend more time now focusing on the things that we only get from scouts. You know, in my day job, I, I help run a hedge fund and we're all obviously evaluating companies. And there is an, an abundance of technical data on those companies, both their financials and historical trading behavior. And yet there's fundamentals of what those companies actually do and how they're doing it and the management team that run them. And so it's a very similar tension between how much of our decision should be based upon just the numbers. If you'd never met the management or didn't know a thing that company did, can you make any sort of predictive judgment on that company based on just the technical data or the financial data versus doing the boots on the ground fundamental analysis of what those companies are, are actually doing and giving you a sense of conviction that there's some future you know, value that they're, they're working towards. I see the same tension in my field that it sounds like you're describing in the baseball field. Yes. And to sort of continue with that, uh, it sound, based on what you're describing, it sounds like the, a similar debate too, which is what, why wouldn't you want all the information, right? What, in what world would you say, I'm happy making this decision without taking in this additional information that is fairly readily available to me, the amount of money that major league teams might spend on a scouting department, including salaries and obviously quite substantial travel expenses each year. It is a pittance relative to what they spend on a major league payroll, what they're paying the 25 plus players that are actually on their major league roster over the course of the year. And if one scout happens to find you one additional big league player, maybe as a 15th round draft pick, a point in the draft where you would never expect to find a major leaguer typically just based on historical data. He finds that for you. He's justified the expense you've put into the scouting department for the entire year. Analytics might do the same thing. The Astros for a while and the Cardinals before that had used their analytics model in the draft to identify certain types of pitchers. They were particularly good at finding these sort of small college relief pitchers who tended to be under scouted historically and getting them to the big leagues. And they wouldn't necessarily be stars, but the fact that they got to the major leagues at all, you suddenly you had an ROI that was above above zero, well, I guess technically above you know negative 100%, right? You weren't just spending the money on them and getting nothing. You were getting a big leaguer. You got an actual return on that. Find a good big leaguer in that 15th round, no matter how you find it, you have justified the investment you've made in that source of data or, or of analysis. And to me, any any time the Astros were doing this more recently where they nearly eliminated their scouting departments. But why? To save a tiny amount of money, you're cutting off this enormous source of additional data that might, as in, in your case, uh, when you're evaluating companies, I think it's the same as when you're evaluating players. You might see a pitcher with an exceptionally high swinging strike rate and uh, other other secondary indicators that would point towards maybe future success. Then you go see the guy and he's actually throwing 82 miles an hour, but he's got a really funky delivery. And for some reason, college hitters, for example, just don't see the ball particularly well. But you know that that's not going to work in the major leagues because there's never been a major league player who's looked like that. That's an extreme example, but why why wouldn't you take both sources of information? Often the the best outcome is one simply verifies the other and you could be that much more confident that you're making the right decision. And sometimes it will prevent you from buying into maybe too much one source of information because the other source says, well, hold up, this, you know, this might be working now, but the long-term forecast is different for these reasons, these other variables that the first data source didn't measure, didn't properly identify. 
in my finance world, we was that's not necessarily a contrarian view. <laughs> you right. didn't stick your neck out to say Bryce no, Harper, who was on SI's cover at right. age 16. Uh, <laughs> right. So that it's not that I'm not taking away from that scout, but that is simply a matter of right place, right time. The scout who said, yeah, I took this guy in the 12th round and he got to the big leagues. And here's why. And then can at least try to explain, well, here are the things that I saw that made me think he had a better chance to get to the major leagues than your typical 12th rounder. And probably that scout, and I can think of many examples. Look, if I really thought he was going to be, if I really thought Paul, Paul Goldschmidt was going to be a multiple-time all-star, right? I wouldn't have waited till the eighth round to take him. I would have said we should have taken him in the first round. There are plenty of those stories, but those are the scouts who sort of understand what they're actually able to contribute and why they're important to the process without taking credit for something that isn't really theirs. The further down in the draft you find the player, the more that we all as an industry look at the scout and say, that's a good job. That scout did, he added value. He saw something that many others, uh, many other people in the industry, maybe nobody else in the industry actually saw. You know, you hear a lot about where human judgment is, is paramount in player evaluation is in areas that are a bit, as yet, not quantifiable. So they may be grit or hustle. Is that, do you, do you believe that that is an area of inefficiency where the scout can really add value? Or do you feel that that is just yet one more aspect of player, you know, characteristics or performance where software hasn't quite eaten that part of the world yet? My answer is mixed in that, I do think there are things like that that matter that are absolutely better evaluated in person. Work ethic is absolutely one of them. And I think you can evaluate that by watching a player, but also, pr frankly, by acting like a bit of a private investigator, talking to his teammates, coaches, maybe his parents, showing up when nobody knows you were there. And you're, you know, I know plenty of stories of scouts who sort of tried to hide themselves so that they could see what was going on, but nobody knew they were there watching a practice or you know, some sort of closed event. Um, uh, players' intelligence in terms of just ability to take instruction uh, and willingness to take instruction too. Uh, players' toughness in terms of responding to adversity. Every almost everybody in baseball is going to fail at some point, and you have to know how that player is going to react. And, um, you know, those measures aren't perfect. I could tell you, Gio Gonzalez has had a very successful big league career twice when he was a prospect uh, in the minors in two different systems, I saw him just wilt on the mound because a fielder failed to make a play behind him. And then suddenly Gonzalez couldn't throw a strike for a while. I said, well, this guy's not, you know, he does not appear to be mature enough to handle that kind of adversity. And I was wrong in that evaluation, but that, that is still something that I would, I would view that as useful information that if I had been a scout for a team at the time, I would have passed up the chain to my bosses and said, here's what I saw. So there are real issues of, again, effort level, work ethic, baseball acumen that I think do matter. I also bristle a bit at terms like grit and hustle uh, because I think they're often misapplied. They can be used as cover to favor a player you particularly like or as ways to run down a player you don't particularly like. And in the worst possible situations, I have argued there's a bit of a uh, sort of very subtle coded language within baseball where players of color are often dinged for you know, being less intelligent or seen as not hustling as much because they're perceived as being uh, more physically gifted and not using the tools the same way. And I'm just very hesitant when we, when we get into highly subjective and language like that, that's not verifiable or, or falsifiable. And, 
people could be using it for the wrong purposes. So to me, it's, it is still information I'd want to collect, but I'd always want to look at it uh, with as critical an eye as possible to make sure we're not misusing that kind of data as well. I love that because, you know, as, as a lifelong baseball fan, you hear that leveled against a lot of Latin born players that they're not hustling or there's like a lack of focus or whether it's Manny B. Manny or Robbie Cano, or, I mean, we could go on a list as long as your arm. And I would bet, and again, I'm just a casual fan, Keith. You're more obviously a much more of a more insider than I am. I bet you those guys bust their butt as much as any other professional player to get to that level of excellence. Nobody coasts their way to a batting crown or or whatever. Just being the even the you know the last the fortieth man on the roster. I'll tell you the worst one I've heard. Uh, I've heard. I won't say who said it or about which players, but he's not a winning player. Well, what the heck is that player ever going to do to to disprove that? His once that gets around, and I would never agree. Like, I don't use that. I've never used that quote. I remember the first time I heard that. I know who said it, and I know who he said it about. Uh, and I know even believed at the time, like that 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 might be a little bit racist, right? I think that's a little bit because it was a player of color in this case, and and. Again, there, there's nothing that can you can't undo that. Yes, he is. He's a winning player. Well, I, I, what? Are we having like a shoving match now? I don't know how to prove or disprove that. And that that's where I get nervous. At least the Gio Gonzalez example I gave. Well, first of all, I'm willing to put my name on the wrong evaluation. And second is, I can tell you exactly what I saw. Something actually happened. I could give you the sequence of events in more detail. Why I said that, and I was still wrong about it. At least if you can back up the evaluation with something that is specific uh, to support your, essentially your allegation, I'm more willing to listen as opposed to the very genetic, he doesn't play hard. Well, he doesn't hustle. Did you see him not hustle? What, what does that mean in tangible terms and why should I, why should I believe you at all? At Amica Insurance. We know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. That's a great segue into a discussion of your new book, which is The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Teaches Us About Ourselves. The book, which is in some ways a direct extension of a lot of the kind of detailed baseball analysis you've written about throughout your career, but also brings in a strong influence from behavioral economics. Perhaps talk a little bit about how this book came together, what led you to want to meld these two fields, and then we'll take some specific examples of behavioral economics as applied to the microcosm, the model system that is professional baseball. So it started out of my own interest in behavioral economics, just sort of as a hobby. I read a lot. Um, I often tell when I'm asked by young writers or would-be writers, you know, what advice do you have? It's the first thing is, if you want to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. And so I read a lot. I read a lot and, and I read a lot of books in different genres, fiction and nonfiction, different styles, different authors. And But one thing I've enjoyed for a long time are sort of smarter books about 
business. I'm not talking about the you know, sort of the good to great sort of schlocky popular business books, but books that combine something that's maybe a little more in the academic vein with um, thinking about modern business or modern economics or even cultural issues. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman uh, came to my attention because I mentioned Sigmund Dahl earlier with the Orioles now. He was the Astros at the time. And uh, he specifically said to me, you'd probably enjoy this book. We're asking a lot of our new hires in the front office in Houston to read this book so they can be uh, better contributors to our group decision-making. And I read it and enjoyed it, but also would say even more than that, because it's not the most entertaining book. And I really like the book, but it's a little on the academic side. But it was more that it challenged me in so many ways. It's, God, I do this stuff all the time. Of course, we all do, right? We all fall for these biases. We're human. But after reading it, I just couldn't get enough. I wanted to read more on the subject. Anything in that vein, if you, I mean, if you wanted me to get a book, just say it had something to do with behavioral economics or cognitive psychology, and it was, here's, take all my money, right? I will read all of these books. And also found that I could use some of those as tools to write about baseball. It was never intentional. It was not, I'm absolutely going to insert this into all of my columns, but it was more just once I had the tools in the toolbox, it became pretty easy to work some of them in where appropriate. And after doing that for probably more than five years between when I first read Kahneman's book and then actually first came up with the proposal for the inside game, I just sort of realized, no, this is a natural fit and maybe I can do something that's different from of the many great books in this sort of area of, of uh, behavioral economics and cognitive psychology, which is that I can explain this stuff using fun examples from the baseball world. So if you're at all a sports ball fan, doesn't you know, hopefully baseball, but maybe not even specifically baseball, and you want to learn about this stuff, about these concepts, maybe I can explain them with examples that'll resonate more or simply be more entertaining to read about. And because obviously I've covered baseball for so long, I had the context to talk, to get you know, first person insights on some of the stories, or I had been there, witnessed them personally, and can give my own perspective on them. And that was my hope ultimately is that it's a baseball book, but it's I, I wanted it to be more than a baseball book and the kind of book readers would walk away from and feel like they'd both been entertained, but also potentially learned something that they hadn't seen before. I was surprised to learn uh, how extensively the book and, and really behavioral economics principles in general have spread through a lot of the front offices uh, in baseball and, and, and listeners. When I say front offices, what I mean is the organizational management teams that run baseball teams and their entire organizations. And so I was surprised to, he to learn that a lot of these principles are sort of really making waves throughout the league that I guess you would hope a lot of your examples are historical looking of a lot of the mistakes that you could then recast and understand in terms of some of these uh, biases and decision making. But does that give you some hope that going forward, we could see a more efficient market, if you will, for baseball players? Or or maybe I should ask in more of an open-ended question, how do you think, insofar as this has been accepted more widely or, or appreciated more widely, how might the future of running baseball teams look in the future? I think we've seen some of it already. We've seen, uh, and it's not necessarily all to the good, at least in terms of the way the industry works. But for example, the last few winters, we've seen a real cooling of interest in uh, position players who are 30 or older and or those who play first base or corner outfield spot. I, I think that is 
absolutely driven by driven by one just the industry's general acceptance of uh, of real analysis of of historical trends on player aging and and on player value and also getting away from the kind of well this guy just did the sort of recency bias what did this guy just do in his last season right well he was a superstar he was in, he was an all-star he was a a cleanup hitter for a great team last year and therefore he will continue to be that we will pay him on that basis which is kind of how free agency worked for position players for pretty much the previous 40 or so years teams finally got a lot smarter about that uh, and are are still spending in free agency, but spending it on very different players or spending it on to retain their own players while they're younger and quite a bit more productive and spending less on players that they get into their thirties. I think the same is also true in the, in the draft. We're still seeing it. Um, we'll see what happens with this year's draft, but I do believe that we are seeing a long-term trend within the baseball draft away from taking too many high school pitchers, particularly in the first round where there's just a lot of both just general optimism bias, like yeah, we we this guy's the next Clayton Kershaw, the next Madison Bumgarner, and also the the big problem that I highlight in the book of survivorship bias, which is I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, if you want to have if you want to get a Clayton Kershaw, you got to you got to be willing to take a high school pitcher in the first round, and that just ignores how many high school pitchers have been taken in the first round who didn't not only didn't turn into Clayton Kershaw, but never even got to the major leagues in the first place, and so I think there is a lot of just more rational, more evidence-based thinking showing up in baseball decision-making, particularly at the front office level. It is It has been slower trickling down to on-field tactics. That will happen over time, but it's clearly going to be a slower process, more evolutionary, as opposed to the revolutionary processes we've seen in the front offices. One of the, I thought, the most compelling parts of the book was your description of moral hazard, broadly speaking, which I'll describe in a second, but also specific instances of moral hazards, such as the principal agent problem. So the moral hazard, of course, is you know, when people you know don't have necessarily responsibility for their actions, that if someone else is picking up the bill, they could have more risky behavior. And we've seen that in the financial world. We can see that. Uh, you, you informed me of the historical antecedents in the insurance world. But talk about the principal agent problem and how, how, that, how that manifests itself in the baseball world, both from the true player agents and management, but also at the, potentially at the level of players. And then why that seems almost unsolvable. And I want to sort of chat with you about the potential solvability of that issue, the principal agent problem. It is a significant one within all sports. Uh, the first person I ever pointed out to me actually was Paul D. Podesta, who was sort of famously not in the Moneyball movie that you mentioned at the top of the podcast. Yeah, I think he, he excused himself. Yes, he did not movie. want his name used. <laughs> Having seen the movie, I can't blame him for that. <laughs> However, he brought this up to me maybe in 2002 or 2003. I remember talking to him about it and about the the difficulty of trying to account for it. Right? You never eliminate this problem. You simply try to put safeguards in place so that you're less affected by it. The, one of the examples I give in the book is a player, Ozzie Albies, who signed a long-term contract extension with his employers in Atlanta that was well below what everyone in the industry believed that the player was worth. And one of the hypotheses that many other teams and even other agents offered was that Albies' agent at the time was concerned enough about the risk of losing Albies maybe to a higher profile agent that he said it was better to lock, he might may have said it was better to take a deal immediately 
because he gets paid, right? His That agent's commission is now locked in for the remainder of the deal. Even if it is not necessarily better for Albies, Albies may have been better not signing anything, waiting a year or two years and getting a more lucrative contract extension. But by that point, he may have been employing a different agent to negotiate on his behalf. Now, I don't know that that's exactly what happened in this case, but it certainly, the outcome that we saw certainly resembled what the principal agent problem would look like, how it would play out in the, the essentially three party negotiations between a player, his agent, and the player's team. And you know, to me, there is that is a, a very fundamental problem for the players' union that they have not really been able to figure out a good way around, because particularly if it's a player who's maybe signing his first ever significant contract, how do you work with a player around his agent essentially to maybe educate him and explain to him, hey, yes, the team's offering you $30 million, but that's actually not a very good deal for you. To most people, $30 million sounds like an amazing amount of money. I would gladly take that if somebody offered that to me. But it turns out in this case, Albies was probably worth 60 to $70 million and, and essentially underpriced himself in the negotiation. Um, in the again, the leading hypothesis that I heard when I talked to people in the industry around the time that it happened then revisited it when I was writing the book was they felt that his agent in that case may have put his own personal financial interests ahead of the financial interests of his client, recognizing that it was better to take the burden the hand of this one contract offer than potentially to take a zero return if he lost Albies to a rival agent. You know, it also, it comes into play both on the player side and you outline some interesting studies of, or, or I guess one potential issue is that will players kind of turn on or turn off their peak effort depending on whatever financial incentives maybe bear upon them at that time. So we know that players are signed to contracts and if you... Is there data to suggest that a player will really try to work hard during those that pre-contract signing year and then maybe slack off once they've got a guaranteed uh, contract in place? And it turns out kind of yes and no. Maybe just talk briefly about the data that, uh, that discuss that particular issue. Sure. So the, it's long been believed within baseball, I can't speak to other sports, but I imagine it's probably similar, that players do sort of get an artificial boost to their performance in their walk years, the last year of their existing contracts before they enter free agency. And that the reason for this is that the player is simply trying harder than he did at other times. And then once he gets the big free agent deal, that he will shirk, that he will essentially not try as hard or not play perhaps as much through minor injuries. And thus the team signing him gets less of a return than they had expected, particularly if they'd fallen for that recency bias we were just talking about and overpaid the player in the first place. And it turns out, kind of, particularly that players seem to play more through minor injuries, uh, just play more in general, I should say, as they're heading into free agency, which is probably a recognition that there's real financial value to playing as much as possible in your year heading into free agency, as long as you're not so hurt that you're just not playing well, that there's a value in simply going out there and racking up performance, racking up counting stats as much as you can heading into free agency. But then it turns out that there really isn't very much evidence of shirking once they do get the cushy free agent contract. It may appear that way because so often players do outperform 
in the free agent year, and particularly players who received larger contracts, probably did have stronger performance in their free agent years. And so even if all they're doing in their first year with their new employers is returning to their typical, or what we might call their true talent level, or their typical level of performance, it could look like shirking to an outside observer. But in fact, that's who the player was all along. It was the previous year that was the outlier. Again, perhaps because the player simply was more willing to play through minor injuries. And once he's secured a long-term contract, is more likely to ask for a few extra days off over the course of the season to rest up. Awesome. Keith Keith Law, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Mind. I encourage all of our listeners to check out his newest book. It's called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Teaches Us About Ourselves. It's available or will be available at bookstores everywhere. Thank you very much, Keith. My pleasure. What's fascinating for me is this notion that um, scouts are actually becoming more data-driven and that they are being evaluated not just on how good their hunches are, but on how well they can back up those hunches, which seems seems like a big change. Yeah, I mean, it's a complement of the two. So every scout today, you know, is going to be bringing some data and, and analytics to bear. But what I think is fascinating, too, is that there's still some elements, or at least it, it seems as though there are some elements of, of performance that is yet to be quantifiable and still require some some judgment. And I think that some of those are some of the real areas that will always make the game interesting because you never be able to predict anything with, with sort of perfect veracity. You know, baseball is in some ways more objective than music, you know, but I think that uh, music is far behind in terms of our ability to see potential and to essentially evaluate a person's, you know, future uh, musical success or musical prowess, talent, whatever you want to call it, um, comparatively. And, you know, it's interesting just just to see how this has changed in baseball. And it makes me wonder whether any of these kinds of approaches might eventually be applied to musicians. I would suspect there'd be a very Moneyball era-like rejection or, or, or repulsion to what you just described among many musicians or professors or judges of of jury prizes of things because just like the the scouts as depicted in the movie you know they obviously there's a protection of what they do and the value of what they do they don't want to become obsolete so there's probably going to be this transitional period where there'll be a strong um you know defense of their judgment and their expertise before the acceptance of widespread, you know, kind of data-driven decision-making in something like music. Yeah, I mean, I already see that. I already see a lot of pushback uh, against even the notion, uh, you know, when I even question this idea of talent and what it means, like there's just a sort of, you know, this I get scoffed at and just say, oh, you just don't know, you can't see it. We should have a whole other podcast on this. I think it's fascinating <laughs> because there's, there's, there's algorithmic creation of music there must be algorithmic, you know, assessment. It could be interesting. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyla Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle our longtime Patreon supporters. Thank you so much, and we promise to put up more content that is exclusive for Patreon very soon. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and joining me this week is... Adam Bristol. See you next week.
At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.